You're listening to the Art of Building Software podcast. Hey guys, thank you for listening to the second episode of the Art of Building Software. My name's Stan and I'm your host. And today we will talk about a hot topic called microservices. And we'll answer these two questions. First, what are microservices? And second, when should you use microservices in your organization? Now, there's a lot of interesting content we'll cover today. And we'll start with explaining a bit about services in general. Before microservices existed, we already worked with services. And a service is nothing more than a function with some logic that can be called from other systems or even internally. So for example, if you look inside the code of a modern application, you probably will see a lot of services. And these are what I call internal services. Now microservices are different because microservices always expose an external service or an external interface but let's not get ahead of ourselves. Now you probably already heard about service-oriented architectures. And while that's a big topic to cover, I can say that microservices use some of the best practices defined in an SOA. So you can say that microservices are the new transition in the way we define and use services. Although the concept of microservices is extremely interesting, they come with a big fat warning. I don't want to dim your enthusiasm, but microservices are hard and they shouldn't be chosen without proper evaluation. There's an essential quote from Simon Brown that says, if you can't build a monolith, what makes you think you can build distributed microservices? And the point he makes is that multiple microservices have to work together to realize a certain functionality. And these microservices are separated by the network and that makes a microservice architecture a distributed system and those are always difficult to create and to maintain. But if it's so hard to realize, then why do organizations choose microservices? Now, a strong motivation is the internet and scalability and of course availability. And in microservice, architecture just scales better and is generally more available compared to a monolithic architecture. But before we continue with our deep dive into the world of microservices, I have to give a shout out to Martin Fowler. Martin Fowler has initially defined the concept of microservices around 2014. Now who's Martin Fowler? You can say that Martin is the father of designing enterprise software. And he has a website called martinfowler.com and he has authored a number of interesting books, for example, UML Distilled, Refactoring and Patterns of Enterprise Application Architecture and that last one is one of my favorites. Now there are two interesting articles for, uh, about microservices written by Martin. And the first is a definition of microservices. And that article explains the concept of microservices and is an extremely interesting read. The second article that's about microservice, that's a guide for microservices that will help you decide when to choose and how to choose microservices in your organization. Now, all of these links will be shared uh, on the show notes of this episode on the website elco.academy. Just go to elq00.academy and there you'll find a podcast article with all the links to the articles of Martin Fowler. 
The topic microservices is a difficult one and I'll do my best to provide you with some meaningful insights. However, if you have questions, you can go to the show notes of this podcast. You can find show notes on the website alco.academy, so that's again elq.o.academy. And at the bottom of the page, you'll find a discussion form. Feel free to post your questions there. If you're listening now and already know a great deal about microservices, please help me answer those questions or add anything of value that makes the topic microservices understandable for other software crafters. To explain microservices, I'll first start explaining the opposite, and that's a monolith. And the concept monolith is often used in combination with the term microservices. It's like the concept monolith is something that's been invented alongside of microservices, but it's not. It's the way you and I probably have been programming all along. So explaining a monolith is pretty easy, but when you look up the word monolith in a dictionary, you see a monolith is a single great stone, often in the form of an obelisk or column. But yeah, that's a pretty useless definition for us. So I've made my own definition and it goes like this. A monolithic application exists of one artifact containing all functions and services that make up an application. And you could also say that a monolith is just one big ball of code. It's all wrapped together in the same project folder or repository. An example of a monolith is a typical web application. It's an application that uses a database to persist data. And there's a server that handles incoming HTTP requests. Now all the code to retrieve data from the database and render HTML is bundled together in one artifact and that artifact is deployed to the server. There are some specifics about a monolith that I'd like to share with you and they are interesting when we'll compare a monolith with microservices later on. Now a monolith typically has one deployable unit and all the code is stored in one single repository. Building a monolith, for example, a web application, results in one single file that you can deploy to a server. Now, when you build web applications in Java, you build one single web archive or WAR file, and that file can be dropped in a folder on a web server, for example, a Tomcat web server, and afterwards Tomcat makes your applications available or application available over HTTP. So that's a simple example of a monolithic application. Now, what about mobile apps? Because mobile applications, the ones you use on an Android or iOS device, have two deployable units, one for the device and one for the server. And I'm assuming the server will provide HTTP services. Now, is this still a monolith? Now, well, all the logic for handling data still exists on the server. And that's still one deployable unit containing all the code. So it's still a monolith. But if you have one deployable unit, that means that if you want to scale your application to handle more users, you can only scale your database and your application. You can scale a database by using a bigger machine, but to scale your application, you can add more servers and a load balancer to redirect traffic. But what you can't do with a monolith is scale one part or one module within your application. Another characteristic of a monolithic architecture is using a limited technology set. So if you build a monolith, you typically use one or one technology like Node.js, Python or Java. And of course, you'll need some libraries for connecting 
through database and rendering HTML, but it doesn't make sense to use Node.js and Java in a single application to show web pages. So you're just using a limited technology set. So what are the benefits of using a monolith? Because if you think you should switch to a microservice architecture, then I've got some solid reasons why you should keep that monolith. And first of all, things are just easier because you only have to worry about one code base. If you're searching, you can search across your entire code base. Building applications is also easier because you can just build everything at once. And all unit tests are packaged within your application and you can execute them all at once. And because everything's in the same repository, that makes it faster to develop your application in the, in the beginning. A second benefit of a monolith is refactoring. And we all know that during the lifetime of an application, you get new insights. And they result typically in some code refactoring. Now suppose you need to refactor two microservices across two teams and two code repositories. That's a lot harder compared to doing just a refactor in one project and one code base. So if you continue thinking down that road, you can de derive another benefit, and that's the definition of interfaces and changing interfaces. If you're working in a monolithic application, you can simply change an interface, for example, remove a parameter, inform team members, and make sure the project works again. And this is possible because each team member shares the same code. Now, if you take the same application and you place it in a microservice architecture and you have two teams, well, it's a lot more work because first you have to inform the other team of your change. And if it's really bad, you have to inform multiple teams and you need to wait until each team has changed their code base and only then you can change your own code base. So you just have to wait. And in a lot of cases, you'll set up some kind of service version management and you'll support multiple versions of the same service. There are other benefits of working with a monolith. And as you know, one of the characteristics of a monolith is a limited technology set. And because each team member essentially works with the same technology, this allows you to define standards and do uniform code reviews. But if your organization uses microservices and each microservice uses a different technology set, it becomes a lot harder to define these standards. Now, this isn't necessarily a problem with microservices, but microservices do make it easier to define different technologies per microservice. So be aware if you're thinking about adopting microservices, keep the technology as unified as possible. Now, there are also operational benefits of using a monolith. And the first benefit is memory consumption. Each application always has a minimum memory requirement. Now, for example, in Java, this is the 64 megabytes, and a typical Java application requires just a bit more. So if you have a big monolith, you'll need more memory, but the initial memory footprint remains the same. And with microservices, it's a little bit different because each microservice requires that initial startup memory. And this might cause a problem if you have a lot of microservices and they each require one gigabyte of RAM to run, for example. And the second operational problem is related to virtualization. So let's say you have a microservice that exposes an HTTP service and it's only used once a day. 
And this microservice is also hosted on a virtual machine like VMware. And the problem I've experienced is that virtual machines tend to place VMs in sleep mode. So when a request comes along, the VM needs to start up. And that takes just a few seconds before you can, if, before your application can start processing the request. But that essentially it will be a slow request and a waste of resources. And with a monolith, your entire application in, is hosted in one single virtual machine and it will never go into hibernation or sleep mode. So it's always available and each request will be as fast as it should be. There are another two benefits of a monolith that I'd like to share with you. And the first one is logging, debugging, and monitoring. It's just so much easier in a monolith. Imagine you have to debug two microservices at once or view the logging of two microservices to spot a problem. And with a monolith, you typically get one code execution flow that's easy to debug. It's also easy to write logging. And afterwards, in the log files, you can easily find out what's going on. And the last benefit, and I've kept the best for last, is what I call strong transactions. If you're building a transactional application today, it's so easy to get used to transactions and the way a database keeps the data clean. So even if there's an error, the uh, transaction will roll back as if nothing has occurred. So if you're using a monolith, normally you don't have to worry about it. With a proper setup, it just works. But with microservices, that's a different story. Because when you call another microservice via HTTP, that call does not participate in your local transaction. That means if something fails in your application, the HTTP call won't roll back. Now, there are solutions available like asynchronous messaging, but it makes everything a little complicated. So my tip for you is if you don't want to worry about transactions, just keep that monolith. If monoliths were so amazing, nobody would even consider using microservices. But there are valid reasons, and the most important one, in my opinion, has to do with scale. So while monoliths are easy to start with, big monoliths get really messy and hard to manage. And the first problem is caused by team size. A typical team has seven to nine software crafters, and history has taught us that's the ideal size. If your team gets any bigger, you'll need to split up your teams and it's a good idea to create a microservice per team. So this allows both teams to work dependent or independent of each other and define clear boundaries and agreements. The second problem is related to scaling that monolith. All you can do is add more servers, but it's difficult to scale individual modules. So let's say you need to, you need to scale that billing module. All you can do is create a server for the billing module, but since they use the same database and the same code base, you're not really scaling the, the billing module, you're scaling everything. And when, for example, when Netflix migrated their billing database to the cloud, they had worth of 10 terabytes of billing data, and that was just for billing. So, so in this case, it makes sense to have a separate module for billing and a separate database that you can scale individually. And in some cases, you might want to use specialized servers for things like video rendering or image processing. If you have a separate microservice, you can scale it and use specialized hardware. The third problem is fixing bugs and testing a monolith. 
because for each bug you'll fix, you'll need to redeploy the entire monolith. And that means that another bug can be introduced in another part of the application. And if a monolith is badly structured, what I call spaghetti code, you'll need to retest everything before fixing and deploying that bug. Many of the problems linked to a monolithic architecture are addressed with microservices. Now, I understand it's difficult to picture how a microservice architecture looks like and works. And I'd like to think of an application you're working on or I have worked on in the past. And I think about the modules or components I can identify. Now, I don't mean the layers in an application like the service layer or database layer. No, I mean the functional modules like user management, billing and such. Now imagine those modules are not a part of your application, but they're sim simply a service you can use. And as such, they're not your responsibility, but that of another team. The definition of a microservice architecture goes like this. A microservice architecture uses several services that work together to provide a set of functionalities. And each service is a component that can be replaced and upgraded without interfering with other components. Each service also provides one or more clear interfaces. They're typically REST interfaces accessible via HTTP or asynchronous messaging. But a microservice is not a library. And each, each service can use multiple libraries but a library as such is not a microservice. So a microservice is not a library. Now each service can use multiple libraries, but a library as such is not a microservice. So what does a typical microservice architecture looks like? Well, suppose you have multiple applications that provide services and each of them can be deployed independently of each other that's a good beginning of a microservice architecture. So each service is independent of each other and they communicate using the network. And this communication can be HTTP calls or messaging. And secondly, each microservice has its own database, possibly its own database. So this can be SQL, NoSQL, or just even a folder, but they do not share a database or any persistence layer. So that's essentially a microservice architecture. Now, while it's hard to define the concept of a microservice architecture, it's a lot easier to explain a number of the characteristics of such an architecture. And with microservices, it's easy to replace parts of the system. Each microservice can be upgraded or replaced independently of the other microservices. And for bug fixing, this means that you can have a limited scope to retest. Now, microservices also strive to use smart endpoints and dumb pipes. Now, what does this mean? So, for example, in large companies, they choose to use an enterprise service bus to handle communication between services. And this allows the ESB to handle data conversions, for example, transforming JSON to XML and rich data and a lot more. With microservices, you use dumb pipes, and that means there's nothing in between two service calls except the network. So all transformations must be handled inside the microservice and making the microservice a smart endpoint. It knows exactly all the functionality it offers to clients, and there's no entity in between transforming anything, so there's no ESB. And this 
really makes the development team the total owner of the microservice. So there's no need for the ESB team to handle any logic. So that's smart endpoints and dumb pipes. With a microservice architecture, you also have decentralized data management. And this is a difficult word for saying that each service can use its own database. And there's uh, no big all-knowing database. So each database also can use its, its own technology. And uh, you can use different database vendors and, for example, NoSQL database. And that's called polyglot persistence. That means that each microservice and each team can choose the best technology. Now, microservices and microservice architecture heavily rely on continuous deployment because with lots of services, it's important to deploy them without manual work. So just imagine deploying 50 services in a day and if it takes a lot of time manually, it will take an entire day. So continuous deployment, make sure everything goes smooth and you don't lose any time with service deployment. So while it's great to have all of these architecture characteristics, one of the most difficult decisions you must make when implementing a microservice architecture is defining each microservice and its domain. Just remember with a monolith, if you make a mistake, you can easily refactor your code. But with microservices, you don't have this luxury. And a good suggestion is to organize your microservices so they fit the business domain in your organization. Your organization may have an accounting division, a marketing division, sales and more. And each of these businesses can be linked to one or more microservices and to the teams that manage those microservices. And the benefit here comes from creating a synergy between the technical team and the business unit. This leads us to the question if microservices are something you should consider. And luckily Martin Fowler has created a general guideline which makes it rather easy. And the guideline says, don't even consider microservices unless you have a system that's too complex to manage as a monolith. And if you follow this rule, it's safe to say that microservices are something to evolve to and not start with. So all greenfield startups and projects shouldn't consider microservices unless you already know you'll need them eventually. Now I have three questions for you that may help deciding if microservices are something you want to pursue. And the first question is, do you, want, do you work in a large organization? And if you are working with multiple teams across business units, then I'd say you're a candidate. It's difficult to say how many teams you need before considering microservices, but my guess is more than three or four teams. And if you have any other experience, please share it with us in the discussion forums of the show notes. The second question is, do you want or need to use mixed technologies? Are certain teams a better fit for using another technology, say a NoSQL database, then microservices are worth considering. The third question, do you have the luxury to think about transactions? Because working with microservices, I know that transaction management will cause some headaches. And the question is, is it worth it? And if the answer is yes, then you can consider microservices. Now, microservices are a new and relatively undefined topic, and whether you must use them or not depends on your situation. 
And one thing is certain, they're not a good fit for everyone. And I hope this episode gave you some understanding of what microservices are and if you should consider them for your organization. Now for our next episode, we'll have a detailed look at the way Netflix uses microservices and the way they use the cloud to create a great product. Thank you for listening and see you next time.